0: Log radio And now shining the light of biblical truth this is truth be told radio with your host Melissa Cancola. Thanks for listening to truth be told radio this is Melissa Cancela and this next is to Start out is votive welcome with dead to sin, alive to God. Here on trip, you radio.
1: Well, as we continue our journey through the book of Romans, we have now come to Romans chapter 6, and today we'll examine verses 5 through 14. Really, we're looking at that section. This section is chapter 6, verses 1 through 14, but it was important to break off those first four verses last week to help get a basic grasp and theological understanding of how Paul is connecting chapter 6 to chapter 5. Also, we need to reiterate again and again that as we move through the book of Romans, a couple of things. One, that the book of Romans, like all the New Testament letters, is meant to be read in a single setting. It was not meant to be broken up into pieces per se in order for us to understand it. Now, it's important for us to understand the component parts so that we understand the whole better. But you have to understand it in light of the whole, which is why it's important that we remember where we've been and where we're going. Now, the first section or the first movement in the book of Romans is commonly understood to be the first four chapters. The entire book is about justification. In those first four chapters, we see our need for justification, and we also see uh, the means by which we are justified. And so we see in in chapter 1 that the Gentiles are in need of justification because they're sinful without the law. We see in chapter 2 that Jews need justification because they are sinful under the law. We see in chapter 3 that all men, are sinful and in need of justification. And there in chapter 3, we see that God has made a way for that justification in the person and work of Jesus Christ there at the end of the chapter. In chapter 4, we see that this is applied to us by faith. Those are those first four chapters that condense our understanding of justification. We move then in chapters 5 through 8, to this application of justification. And specifically in chapters 5 through 8, we get a better picture of the outworking of justification, commonly known as sanctification. That's what's happening here in chapters 5 through 8. And it's important that we recognize what is happening here in chapter 6 by looking back and remembering what we saw in chapter 5, and that is the distinction between the first Adam and the last, Adam. We have to grasp that and understand the federal headship of the first Adam and the federal headship of the last Adam in order to grasp what's being spoken of here in what is one of the most complicated chapters in the book of Romans, that is chapter 6. We understand in chapter 5 the federal headship of Adam in that because of the one man, sin entered the world and death through sin. So death passed to all of us, sin passed to all of us. Because our federal head, Adam, our representative, sinned. He was our federal head, he was our representative, and he sinned. We've used this illustration before, but it bears repeating. Federal headship is best understood in the context of, say, for example, a monarchy. If we live in a monarchy, our federal head is the king. And if our federal head, the king, declares war on another kingdom, That means we, because we are under our federal head, are also at war with this other kingdom, okay? That's federal headship, our federal head. We have federal headship in a sense here. If our Congress, instead of a king declaring war, our Congress, forget all of American history after World War II in order to hold on to what I'm saying here. But our Congress is the only body that can declare war. I know what you're thinking. We've been in war since World War II. We've never declared a war since World War II, but just, just just, leave that alone for a minute, all right? Our Congress is the only body. It's our federal head that can declare war. When our Congress declares war, we are at war because our federal head has declared war. Adam, our federal head, fell and sinned, and in him we fell and descend. But in Chapter 5, we see the good news that we have a new federal head in the last Adam who succeeded where the first Adam failed. The last Adam is the federal head of all of those who belong to him and who are therefore in him by faith. You get under the federal headship of the first Adam by birth. Amen. By birth. That's how you get under the headship of the first Adam, by birth. It is not some act that you commit later on in your life. You do not make a decision later on in your life that you will align yourself with the first Adam. You are born in sin and shaped in iniquity. It is your birth that aligns you with your federal head Adam. It is also birth that aligns you with your federal head, Jesus. It is the new birth. It is being regenerate or being born again that unites you with your federal head, Jesus Christ. This is incredibly important to understand because if we don't get this, we don't understand chapter 6. In chapter 6, verses 1 through 14, we see the picture of what justification does in granting the believer victory over sin. I almost hesitate to say the words because there's so many caveats that need to be offered. Justification grants to the believer victory over sin. Both eschatologically, there's that big word again, remember eschatology, eschaton, the end of the age, what we believe about the end of the age, ultimate reality, So, eschatologically, we know that we will ultimately have victory victory over sin. But also, in a temporal sense, in the here and the now, we have victory over sin. And we understand what that means when we understand Romans chapter 6. This is crucial. But before we get there, let me help you for just a moment See Why it is difficult for us This goes to the heart of our understanding of the gospel And as we've said before We have a warped understanding of the gospel Because of the culture in which we live We do not understand what the gospel is We do not understand what the gospel requires We do not understand what the gospel produces We don't speak gospel language and because of that, when you get to the ideas presented in Chapter 6 and our victory over sin, we don't understand sanctification because we don't understand justification. Now, what do I mean by that? Here's what, here's what I mean. When you ask a person what is the gospel, most people in our culture will immediately begin to give you the plan of salvation. Not the gospel. They give you the Roman's role, to give you the plan of salvation to give you something like that. Not a pronouncement of the... Redemptive work that God has accomplished in the person and work of Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. The gospel is an announcement of what Christ has accomplished. That is the gospel. That is the good news. Okay? It's Christ, his work, not you and your work. That's the message of the gospel. Now, if we don't understand that, we don't understand sanctification. How does a person... Come To be in right relationship with God Ask the average person in our culture And you'll hear phrases like this You'll hear phrases like They make a decision For Christ Or you'll hear phrases like They invite Jesus Into their heart Or you'll hear phrases like I have decided to follow Jesus Or you'll hear phrases like I, I, I gave my life Christ. Do you you notice the consistent theme running through all of this? Okay? It's Frank Sinatra's salvation. I did it my way. Okay? It's what I did. I decided. I invited. I opened. I gave. I, 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 I. That's the way we understand justification. Justification is achieved by me doing something in order to get in right relationship with God. That's the classic Armenian understanding. It's it's synergism, synergy, two forces working together, as opposed to understanding that justification is something that is granted to us by God, by grace, apart from anything that you or I could ever do. That's how we're justified. God saves sinners. But that's not the way we talk about salvation. And the reason we don't talk about salvation that way is because we do not believe that we are saved that way. We are Pelagian to the core. Again, Pelagianism, the idea that in the fall there is part of us that is untainted enough for us to be able to reason our way Back to God For us to be able to pull ourselves up By our bootstraps For us to be able to decide for God Not that we must be born again In order to even see the kingdom of heaven Listen to this from Lorraine Bettner I've I've quoted Lorraine Bettner's classic work The Reformed Doctrine of Predestination A number of times I would hope that you would get this that That you would have this That you would read this But listen to Bettner He's quoting here but He says, the contrast between Calvinistic and Arminian basis for morality is clearly stated in the following section of McFittridge. The two great springs by which men are moved are, on the one hand, conviction and idea, and on the other, emotion and sentiment. As these control, so the moral character will be shaped. Don't miss this. If we believe that you are justified or you are saved by you deciding, you committing, you giving, you opening, whatever the case may be, then what do we have to believe about how you're sanctified? You deciding, you committing, that has to be it. So if there is a sin problem in your life, how do you deal with sin on the larger scale? Have been going from death to life. Well, I dealt with it by making a decision and devoting or dedicating my life to Christ. So, if later on in my life I have another sin problem, what do I need to do? We dedicate my life to Christ. You follow that? I did it the first time. It didn't take. So I need to do it again. I need to redouble my efforts. I need to dedicate myself again. This alters everything. This alters the way we evangelize. If I believe, for example, that man is saved by his own initiative and inclination, then how do I evangelize? I have to get to that place in that man where I can motivate him to make the right decision. How do you help someone who's fallen to sin? Well, from an Armenian perspective, let's take, for example, someone who is violent. If someone is violent, what do you do? Well, maybe you give that person a proper outlet. What would that look like? A punching bag or mixed martial arts class. You need to go somewhere where you can get that aggression out. Your problem is that you don't have the right outlet. So you get the right outlet, that will take care of your violence problem. Does that sound familiar? How about this? A proper understanding. You're violent because you don't understand, and what you need to do is learn how to sympathize with your victims. If you knew how your violence affected other people, you wouldn't be violent. Perhaps you need a proper technique. Learn how to count to ten. Learn how to take the time out. Learn how to do whatever. Again, or finally, perhaps you need a proper environment. You need to avoid the triggers that make you violent. This all ought to sound very familiar. And I'm not talking about outside the church. I'm talking about inside the church. All these things have one thing in common. We believe that this is something other than a sin problem or worse. We believe it is a sin problem, but the way you overcome sin is by technique, understanding, will, etc., etc. But if on the other hand, we believe that salvation is a monergistic work, Synergistic. God and man working together to save man. Monergistic. God saving man by himself without man's help. If we believe that salvation is monergistic, that also changes the way we evangelize. If God saves sinners and God uses the foolishness of preaching and the foolishness of the gospel, what's my goal? My goal is to be as clear with the gospel as I possibly can because that's what God uses. It's my goal to somehow manipulate the man into making a decision. No, because I realized I cannot do that. Salvation is a work of God. So I proclaim the gospel knowing that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation, not my manipulation of man. It also deals, it also affects the way you help people deal with sin. if you were justified by God and his work in the gospel, you are also going to be sanctified by God and his work in the gospel. And that's Paul's argument here in Romans chapter 6, but he gives us the theological basis and foundation for it. This also, by the way, changes preaching. It does. It changes preaching. I I was taught preaching from an Armenian perspective not from a Reformed or Calvinistic perspective. So from an Armenian perspective, if man gets saved by him, you know, taking initiative with that part of him that's not affected by the fall, our job is to affect that part of him that's not affected by the fall. If man gets sanctified and gets better by him learning techniques or changing his environment, things like that, what what do my sermons sound like? Five ways to have a happy life, ten ways to reduce stress, more ways to overcome depression techniques techniques skills some of those things may be good but by the way the things that we talked about you know it might not be bad to have a punching bag it might not be bad to learn sympathy or empathy but might not be bad at all to learn to avoid certain circumstances, those things are not inherently bad. But if I believe that they aren't the answer, I've missed the mark. So with that in mind, let's look here. We'll go back to verse 1. We'll read all the way through verse 14, but we'll concentrate on 5 through 14. What shall we say then? By the way, as we read, we're going to read this a couple of times. But as we read through the first time, because I I want you to understand that there are two things going on here. Paul is talking about two separate ideas, two separate themes, two separate ways. I want you to see how many times he reiterates this. So the first time we read through it, every time you see death or dead. I'm reading the ESV. So if you have the ESV, every time you see death or dead, would you read that aloud with me? Okay. Did you just read that aloud with me every time you see death or dead? What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Mm -hmm. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead... By the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the midst of life. For if we have been reunited with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him at a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have to make you obey his passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments of righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but grace. Do you think Paul's making a point here? Over and over and over, and over, and over again. Death, 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 death. Now, when we read again, we're not going to look for life. Because pretty much when you see death, the opposite of that, you see the life. Here's what I want us to look for as we read through it again. We're going to start again at verse 1. And when you see in him... Christ would you read that with me again what shall we say then are we to continue in sin that grace may abound by no means how can we who died to sin still live in it but excuse me do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death we were buried therefore with him Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments of righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. Do you see that? There's a definite pattern here. There's the idea of death and the idea of life. By the way, that last statement in verse 14 also sums up the concept of death and life, but it gives you under law versus under grace. Under law, death. Under grace, life. So this is all about death and life. It's all about Christ and his relationship to death and life and sin, but it is about us in Christ and with Christ and what that has to do, the implications thereof for our relationship to sin. Let's grasp this. Number one, our victory over, victory over sin rather is impossible for those in Adam. Victory over sin is impossible for those in Adam. That's important to understand. Look at verses 6 and 9. Look at verse 6. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Before we were in Christ, we were in Adam. And when we were in Adam, we were enslaved to sin. Look at verse 9. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. So death had dominion over us because we were enslaved to sin. So, death, as as one commentator writes, death and sin are sort of co-regents, and one cannot reign without the other. So, death has dominion over us because we're enslaved to sin. That is the lot in life for those of us who are under first Adam, and his federal headship, which is everyone who has not experienced the second birth. That's everyone. All of us, apart from Christ, are slaves to sin and under the dominion of death. Every last one of us. Now, as we say this, again, it's very important for us to understand this doctrine of total depravity, what it means to be a slave to sin. Does that mean that a man is as bad as he could possibly be? No. By the mercy and common grace of God, men are not as bad as they could be. Amen. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Okay. Every time you see some crime that is just absolutely heinous, and you ask yourself, how could anyone do something like that? You, you know what? There are a whole lot of things that you just learned, but here's one thing that you just learned. People are not as bad as they could be because that's not common. People are not as bad as they could be, because that's not common. You hear about something so horrendous that you, can't, you, you can barely wrap your mind around it. Listen, if one human being could be that sinful, all of us could be that sinful. But it is by God's grace that we are not. And as bad as whatever it is that you heard about is, it's still not as bad as it could be. So if we're slaves to sin, what does that look like? Let's go to our confession. London Baptist confession, chapter 9 on free will. Number one, God has endued the will of man with that natural liberty and power of acting upon choice. That it is neither forced, nor by any necessity of nature determined to do good or evil, okay? It's not determined that man will do good or evil. Number two, man in his state of innocency had freedom and power to will and to do that which was good and well-pleasing to God, but yet was mutable so that he might fall from it. Number three, man by his fall into a state of sin has wholly lost all ability of will, to any spiritual good accompanying salvation, so as a natural man being altogether averse from that good and dead in sin is not able by his own strength to convert himself or to prepare himself thereunto. It is impossible for you to please God apart from regeneration. It is impossible. It is impossible. You are fallen in your sin, and you do according to your will, but your will is absolutely bent toward sin, evil, and self-gratification. It's like the classic illustration of the carnivore and the herbivore. You think about the herbivore. You know, he only eats plants. Is he free to eat meat? Is the cow, the cow's an herbivore, is the cow free to eat meat? Yes, the cow is free to eat meat. However, the cow's will will not choose to eat meat. Why? Because it is contrary to his nature. So though it's there. He's not going to choose it. Because it's contrary to his nature. It's the same thing for those who are Paul and Adam. You are a slave to sin. Righteousness is there. But will you choose it? No. Because it is contrary to your very nature. And even when you do things that appear to be good... Because lost men do things that appear to be good. It's sort of like, you know, a, a, a cow who's an herbivore who's going through and eating some grass, and there happens to be, you know, a worm on the grass or an ant on the grass or whatever that might get eaten. Did it eat meat? Yeah. That wasn't his intention. Did the man do something that outwardly looked good. Yeah, but righteousness wasn't his intention. Righteousness to the glory of God wasn't his intention. Two soldiers both fall on a grenade and save their respective units. Did they act out of righteousness? Was it necessarily a good act and a righteous act? You can have one guy who fell on the grenade because literally he valued the lives of those around him and desired that they be saved and rescued. And by God's grace, he did that act to the glory of Almighty God. You can have another guy who was just tired of the war. a man do something? A man who is in Adam, a man who is completely lost, can he do something that looks like a righteous act? Yes. He does it all the time. But if his motives, self-glorification, self-gratification, and not the glory and honor of Almighty God, that act, though it appears righteous, is actually sinful. Victory over sin is impossible for those who are in Adam. There is none righteous. No, not even one. Turn with me to the right. We'll get there eventually in chapter 8. Look at chapter 8, and let's begin at verse 5. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it can not. Indeed, it can not. Those who are in the flesh can not please God. I don't write the mail. I just deliver it. The Bible says that if you are in Adam, it is impossible for you to please God. There's nothing that you do that is righteous. Nothing. Absolutely nothing. By the way, this is why it is such a travesty to preach moralism and not the gospel. You have a man who's lost in his sin. He is in the first Adam. He is not in the last Adam. There is nothing that he can do to please God. But you set him in a church and give him five ways to have a happy life, ten ways to reduce stress, six ways to be a better husband, so on and so forth, so that he then goes and attempts in the flesh to do that which is impossible and feels better about himself while he's on his way on the express train to hell because we somehow communicated to him. All God's interested in is you following the right steps. The only thing that matters is for you to be good in these ways. No, if you have not been born again, it is impossible for you to please God. Nothing that you do is pleasing to God. On your best day, you deserve hell and the grave. Hear me on this. For the sake of your soul, hear me on this. It's just as true, however, that victory over sin is inevitable for those who are in Christ. Look at 6 through 10. Look first at verse 5. Verse 5 is the connector between the first paragraph, 1 through 4, and the second paragraph. And so verse 5, and we'll talk more about verse 5 in a minute, but verse 5 says, If we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in the resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. So we were slaves to sin, but now... Because of the death of Christ in which we are united, we're no longer slaves to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. There is the truth and the reality about us. That Paul is communicating. He's also communicated this earlier if you look in verses 1 through 4. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means, may it never be. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried with him in baptism into death. In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. It's impossible. It doesn't work. It is inevitable that those who are united to Christ will have victory over sin. It's inevitable. 1 John chapter 3. Let's go there. 1 John chapter 3. beginning in verse 4. 1 John chapter 3, beginning verse 4. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous. He As he is righteous, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. It is inevitable that those who have been born again who are in Christ will be victorious over sin. It's inevitable. That makes us uncomfortable. And I don't mean it makes us uncomfortable just because we don't understand what it means. And the one sense, it can make us uncomfortable because we can say, well, wait a minute, are you saying that there's sinlessness? We
2: heard on last week
1: that that's not what Paul's communicating here. But even beyond that, even if we know that Paul's not talking about sinlessness in this life, it still makes us uncomfortable. One of the reasons it makes us uncomfortable is because this little fact, We've heard this gospel the wrong way for so long. And the gospel the wrong way is you are the one that did the work. Now, some people will go so far, you know, they'll say, now God does 99% of the work, but you do the 1% that's, you know, the deciding factor. That, that, that's Billy Graham's famous line. D.L. Moody's famous line and D.L. Moody's famous track. He had this track. And on the outside of the track was this. It was a ballot, and it was God, Satan, and you. God has cast his vote. Satan has cast his vote. Now it's time for you to cast in the deciding vote. That's how we understand salvation. I cast the deciding vote. I do the deciding work. How do we understand sanctification? Sanctification is God has made it available for me, But I've got to go learn the steps and work the steps so that I can do the sanctification thing. Because we've been in that so long, when people talk about victory over sin, there's a little alarm that goes off in the back of our minds. And that alarm that goes off in the back of our minds says, oh, no, 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 don't do that, because then you get into that one saved, always saved, and people won't strive for righteousness. Danger, danger, danger people won't strive for righteousness. You only worry about that if you believe that sanctification is the result of people striving for righteousness. I don't believe that. Your sanctification is not the result of what you strive for. Paul is making clear that your sanctification is the result of what Christ has done and applied to your life. So my hope is not that you would leave here with a worry on your mind that it's significant enough to keep you working the steps. It works if you work it. That's not my worry. My worry is that you leave here remembering the source of your righteousness, the person and work of Jesus Christ, that you keep him in the forefront of your mind because that's your only hope of victory over sin. It guarantees it. Guarantees it. It's my mindset. Thirdly, victory over sin is guaranteed by the work of Christ applied to believers. It's guaranteed by the work of Christ applied to believers. Let, let, let's look a little more closely here at this text. Three types of hope. Our forensic hope our eschatological hope, and our immediate or temporal hope. First of all, our forensic hope. When you talk about justification from a forensic perspective, that is when we talk about justification as in God has declared us righteous, that that forensically or legally God has justified us. He has put us in right relationship with himself. So that's the first hope that we have. We saw that in Romans chapters 1 through 4, and really we saw it in Romans chapter 3, that our hope, our forensic hope, is in God declaring us righteous by the finished work of Jesus Christ. That's our forensic hope. Our forensic hope, by the way, gives us freedom or deliverance from the penalty of sin. That's our forensic hope. I have freedom from the penalty of sin. I'm not going to die and go to hell because God has declared me righteous. There's also, however, our eschatological hope. Our eschatological hope is hope that we will one day be delivered from the very presence of sin. Not just the penalty of sin, but the presence of sin. That sin will be no more. Where would that hope come from? Well, there's that connector, verse 5. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. That's our eschatological hope. There is a time coming when I am going to be free from the very presence of sin. I will sin no more. That time, however, is not now. It is a future hope. This point right here in verse 5 clearly demonstrates demonstrates that Paul is not teaching that believers come to a place where they are perfectly sanctified before their glorification. That is not true. That is an eschatological hope. We don't have what is called an overrealized eschatology. An overrealized eschatology is one that brings those things that are future into the present as though they are complete realities now. That's an overrealized eschatology. But I do have a hope that I will one day be delivered from the very presence of sin. But Hold on. Why? Look carefully at verse 5. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Someone had asked you before coming in here, on what do you base your hope for resurrection? What was your answer then? Think about that for a moment. What would your answer have been? Well, oh, my, my hope is based on, well, let's, let's give ourselves a bit of a doubt. We're going to give him the right answer. It's based on Christ and his finished work. No. It's based on, because Christ and his finished work got him a resurrection. Amen? How do you know it's going to give you one? Well, because I believe in Christ and his resurrection. So does the devil. He was there. Amen. What's the difference between you and him? You are in Christ. That's your hope of resurrection. You are In Christ. We read it earlier, did we not? In him, with him, in Christ Jesus, with Christ Jesus. You are united with Christ. You are in Christ. The most beautiful picture of this, you know where I'm going. Go to Ephesians chapter 1. We've got to go to Ephesians chapter 1 and listen to the language of the same author here in Ephesians chapter 1 as he explains this picture. Ephesians chapter 1, beginning at verse 3. This is critical. It's the key to unlocking this doctrinal issue that can be so confusing. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. By the way, we were elected unto what? Holiness. Holiness. If there's no holiness, you're not willing to be elect. So we do we get uncomfortable when we say, oh, wait a minute. I get that our victory over 10 is guaranteed." Yeah, and you know, it's inevitable for those of us. Yeah, it is. It is. set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven, and things on earth. You are in Christ. You are united with Christ. The closest picture that we have to it is marriage. By the way, Ephesians 5 makes that clear, like clear, doesn't it? Here's what's interesting. When I die, I've said this before, but let me, just let me say it again. I die, and they notify my next of kin. They are not going to notify the woman who bore me in her womb, the woman who nursed me from her breast, the woman who cared for me, clothed me, fed me, They are not going to notify my mother because my mother is not my next of kin. My wife is. How does that happen? Covenantal union that we have that mirrors the union between the church and Christ. We are in him, which is why all that is his is ours, because we are united with him. Therefore, I'm going to have a resurrection If I have an eschatological hope But I also have a temporal hope Why? Follow through in verse 6 Follow the logic Now in verse 6 he says We know that our also, again, we have hope of resurrection When I die, I'm going to heaven Amen, that's great, I'm glad you believe that But what we have a harder time believing Is that we're going to have victory over sin And that we're going to live in righteousness But the same principle that gives you With him in order that the body of sin Might be brought to nothing So that we would no longer be enslaved to sin For one who has died Has been set free from sin Who died? Christ Where were you when he died? In him Which means that that accrues to you His resurrection accrues to you But also this freedom from bondage to sin Accrues to you as well We know that Christ, verse 9, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. Why do we believe that we're going to have a resurrection? Because we believe that death no longer has dominion over us because we're in Christ. Next verse. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. He did not just give you an eschatological hope. He gave you a right now hope, that right now, Because you are in him, you live a life to God, which is a life of holiness and righteousness that you did not earn for yourself, but it was earned by the person and work of Jesus Christ. That's your victory over sin. It is a theological reality. It is a theological truth. It is as real as your hope of a coming resurrection. So, Okay, so uh, what I do? Just sit there and let it happen? Here's the beauty of Paul's writing. Those are the indicatives. Now come the imperatives. The indicatives, that's what's true about you. The imperatives, it's what you do in light of and because of what's true about you in light of and because of what's true about you. So now we get to verse 11. So you also must, there's four things here. Number one, consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ. Now, before we go here, let's just back up for a moment. Before we look at these four imperatives, let's back up for a moment so that we don't undo what we just did. Because we could. We could undo what we just did. And here's a list of four things that you've got to go do. Go work hard for your sanctification. Okay? Uh, hold on. These things we do because of what Christ has done. These things we do as a result of what Christ has done. So when he gives us these imperatives, it, it's sort of like, I'm going to use, there's two illustrations here. It, it, it's sort of like, in, in order to understand this, and I'm going to use these two illustrations because of words and phrases that the apostle uses. Okay? One is a military illustration because he uses military terms here when he says that we offer ourselves to God's tools for righteousness. It's a military term. It's weapons for righteousness. So it's a military term. And so we've all seen the films, World War II, greatest military assault in the history of warfare. And we've, the speeches, there's always the speech that happens right before you storm the beaches, or the speech that happens right before Easy Company goes and jumps out of the airplane. They get the speech, and in the speech there's always that moment where the commanding officer says something like, remember the truth. You are ready for this. You are prepared for this. Remember your truth. Now, is the commanding officer saying, that the act of you remembering your training is what really makes the difference? No. Training is what makes the difference. He's just trying to encourage these soldiers to rely on that thing that matters most. Rely on the training that we get. Now, for us as believers, it's not remember your training. It's remember your victory that you have in Christ. So here in verse 11, look at what he says. He says, So you must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Remember your training. Don't be afraid. Don't worry about the outcome. Do what you've been trained to do. That's what the commanding officer says. What we're being told is Christ has won the victory. You consider and you reckon yourself in him. That doesn't make you in him. It just reminds you of what is true. Remember what is true. Your victory over sin comes when you remember what is true. The other illustration is the illustration of slavery. It it runs throughout this whole chapter, the idea of slaves to sin. We have, in our nation's history, a vivid illustration of this truth. Amendment 13. Slavery abolished December 6, 1865, ratified December 6, 1865. So we just just passed the 145th anniversary of the ratification of the 13th Amendment. And by the way, it was the 13th Amendment, not the Emancipation Proclamation that ended slavery. The Emancipation Proclamation did not free a single slave. It was the 13th Amendment that ended slavery. Listen to the 13th Amendment. By the way, the 13th Amendment – only into certain types of slavery. Listen to the 13th Amendment. Neither slavery slavery nor involuntary servitude, except as a punishment for crime, wherefore the party shall, be, shall have been duly convicted, shall exist within the United States or any place subject to their jurisdiction. Neither slavery nor involuntary servitude. Now, if you take that middle clause out, then you do get a complete abolition of slavery. It reads like this. Neither slavery nor involuntary servitude. Shall exist within the United States or any place subject to its jurisdiction, but there's that clause. Except if somebody's convicted of a crime, then they can be put into involuntary servitude or slavery, which we call penitentiary. Okay. Now, December 6, 1865, you're a slave. You're a slave on a plantation in Mississippi, Alabama, or New York or Pennsylvania. Okay. And it's December 6th, 1865. And in that moment, you have your forensic freedom from slavery. It's the law. You're no longer a slave. But every bone in your body knows nothing else. Every fiber of your being that was born on the plantation, born into slavery, and spent every day as a slave, knows nothing else. So if somebody would then say to you, live like a free man, consider yourself free. Is your considering yourself free what made you free? No. It's this, declaration that made you free. But if someone says consider yourself free, they're just saying you need to think about yourself in accordance with that which is true, regardless of what you feel or regardless of your circumstances. Secondly, look at verse 12. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. There's the second one. Don't let sin reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Don't let sin reign in your mortal body. Don't do it. Don't let sin reign in your mortal body. Now, again, is this saying your victory over sin really comes as a result of you girding up your loins and not letting it be? No. Go back to the illustration. The commanding officer. When those doors open up. Everything in you is going to want to stay on those boats. Stay there, you die. When the door opens up, do not listen to your fear. Move forward toward the beach. To the slave, all you've ever known is slavery. All you've ever known is yourself as a second-class citizen. You are free. Remember that you are free, and do not act like a slave anymore. Why am I reminding you? Because this is the source of your freedom? No, I'm reminding you because everything in you has been conditioned in the opposite direction, and so I'm reminding you of what's already true because you're conditioning in the opposite direction. Same thing with sin. You were born in the first Adam. Paul's reminding you, consider yourself according to what God says is true. He's reminding you, do not give yourself to that to which you no longer belong. Thirdly, verse 13, do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments of righteousness militaristic terminology here. You're a weapon of righteousness, not a weapon of unrighteousness. There's a connection here. It's not just don't give yourself over there, but give yourself over here. Don't let sin reign in your mortal body. Give yourself to God. That's how you don't let sin reign in your mortal body. Give yourself to God. You come to the cross again and again and again. That's how. That's your victory. It's the cross. Remind yourself. Consider it to be true. Don't give your members over there, but give your members to God. How do you give your members to God? Those ordinary means. That's why you need to come to church and hear the gospel preached again and again and again. That's why we have the Lord's Supper to remind us of his death and resurrection again and again and again. That's why the goal of our singing is to remind you of that which is true again and again and again. That's why you worship in your families on a regular basis, because you need this again and again and again, and to the degree that we give ourselves over and over and over to God and remind ourselves again and again and again of that which is true. There's victory. And here's the fourth thing. I I love this. You get those imperatives, and just just in case you're about to run off the deep end and think that this is just about you and it's not about the indicatives, how does he sum it up in verse 14? He goes back to the indicatives. Look at verse 14. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law but under grace. Sin will have no dominion over you. You're not under law You're under grace You don't live there anymore That is not your hope This is not works righteousness You're you're not Israel under the old covenant Your covenant is not based on you Standing here and saying All these things we will do No Your covenant is based on this This is the new covenant in my blood Christ. so does this mean that we're free from the law? No. The law is good. We'll see that in chapter 7. But we're free to obey. We weren't before. We didn't have what it required before. We were under the old Adam, and everything in us was herbivore. Now our nature has been changed. And you're a cow that can eat space. Nature's changed You're not the same So here's what Paul does Here's all the theology To help you understand Who you are in Christ And the victory that you have And here's what you do with it First thing he tells you to do with it Is consider it to be true of you Secondly Don't give yourself to the camp That you don't belong to anymore but thirdly, give yourself to the one to whom you belong. And right after it, he says, because all that theological truth that I told you before is true. Here's the truth. Here's what you do with it. And oh, by the way, do it because it's true. The indiquitous and the imperatives. You do it because it's true. When the door's open,
3: you get out and you head
1: toward the beach. Your body's going to be saying, well, wait a minute, that's where the guns are at a shooting mm-hmm. at you. Don't listen to your body. Listen to your training. You do what we've taught you to do. N- not, not what your old reflexes tell you to do doing what we taught you to do is your only hope of survival. You're you're free now. You're not a slave anymore. Well, wait a minute. I was born a slave. All I've ever known is slavery. I'm in a different class of people than this person. I belong to this person. No. No, you don't. You're free. Don't act like a slave anymore. Although every fiber of your being has been conditioned to act like that and like nothing else There is another truth And another reality that overrides Live in accordance with that truth And that reality Those are the two illustrations that run through This passage and Paul uses them both To say to you and to me You are no longer Under the last Adam You are no longer slaves slave to sin you are no longer under death's dominion. You are no longer under the law. You are now under the federal headship of the last Adam, Christ. And in him, you have been victorious over death. In him, you will ultimately be free from the very presence of sin in your own bodily resurrection. And in him, in the meantime, you live a life unto God. And whereas every fiber of your being has been conditioned for your whole life to go in the opposite direction, you believe what's true, not what you were used to. You live in accordance with what's true, not with what was necessarily comfortable for you at a time. In his book, The Mortification of Sin, John Owen uses this illustration. Owen says, when a man is being crucified, at first he yells out and his cries are great. But eventually, they become fewer, farther between, not as noisy anymore. Oh, there may be moments when he musters up the strength to cry out again in agony, but it, they won't continue. Eventually, when blood and life is gone, they will lie there dead. This, Owen argues, is what the mortification of sin is like. When there is a sin that's used to controlling your life, and you nail it to the cross. It will cry out in agony, and its cry will be great. But if you leave it there, eventually those cries become fewer and farther between. They have less steam in them, less energy in them, less power in them, and eventually their life force is gone, and they die there on the cross. reality for those of us who are in Christ. Your sin is nailed to the tree. Don't have pity on it. Leave it there. Let it die. You are in Christ. And that's not yours anymore.
4: The UN wants to do what? This is Ken Ham, and our Creation Museum celebrates life with a fearfully and wonderfully made exhibit. Earlier this year, the United Nations released shocking guidance that called for the decriminalization of sexual relations with minors, with no age limit given. It's appalling, and yet, it's not really that surprising. After all, it's the logical result of saying that children can decide what gender they are at a very young age. So why can't they make other decisions about their bodies? But in a Christian worldview, we can be rightly appalled. Children are given to parents to be nurtured, discipled, and protected, not to be allowed to make whatever decisions they supposedly want. It's the biblical worldview that values and protects children.
0: Want to learn more about the biblical view of children and to discover more about our Pro-Life Museum exhibit? Visit AnswersRadio.com. That's AnswersRadio.com.
2: Colossians 1.15 says that Jesus Christ is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Now, there are many who have interpreted firstborn of all creation to mean that Jesus is the first being created by God. The Mormons teach he is the literal offspring of heavenly father and heavenly mother. The Jehovah's Witnesses believe Jesus is the Archangel Michael. However, the very next verse says, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. So since Jesus is the creator of all things, he himself cannot be a created being, because if he was created, he can't be the creator of all things. Jesus, the son of God, is eternal and uncaused, one with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. Jesus is God. John 1.18 says no one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, that would be Jesus Christ, he has made him known. First John 5.20 says Jesus Christ is the true God and eternal life. Paul says in Titus 2.13 that he is our God and Savior. In Isaiah 43.10, God says, Before me no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. So Jesus, who is God, is eternal with no beginning and no end, from everlasting to everlasting. So what does it mean to say Jesus is the firstborn of all creation? It's just another way of saying that all things belong to him. The Father has given him all the rights of a firstborn son. Everything that belongs to God the Father belongs to the Son of God, the true God of the Bible, when
5: we understand the text. I'm so sorry, my Presbyterian friends. Presbyterian Church USA, remember... That's the wonky one. What you're about to hear isn't even Christian. I I watched as much of this as I could stomach, which means we probably won't get through very much of this. It's worth hearing how a radical liberal feminist goes about the business of totally twisting the Bible into nuts. It seems to me that we could perhaps learn one thing about this. Maybe this could in some small way be helpful in our national discourse. We need to label this as what it is not christian. This is not a church. This is not a pastor. There's there's nothing christian about this Presbyterian Church USA pastor.
6: People often ask me how I can be a feminist and a christian. My response is that being a feminist christian is the only way I can be a christian.
5: Oh, I see. Hey, if you think that liberals are always nice Ooh, that shot hit me right between the eyes How's about you? That type of Christianity? Oh, no way I couldn't be like that unless I could be feminist How do you become a feminist Christian? The author
6: of 1 Timothy would certainly have considered Feminist theologians and female clergy To be disobedient daughters of Eve Yes And there are a lot of Christians out there who would agree Yes And that's okay with me
5: I bet it's not.
6: Feminist theology has taught me how to reinterpret Scripture in ways that are healing and (laughs) life-giving.
5: It's honest. I give her props. She's not trying to hide anything. Look, I know the Bible has been clearly understood to mean this now for, for millennia.
6: I got a new hermeneutic here. And I refuse to allow conservative Christians or anyone else to take my God away from
5: me. Well... One of us has got a different God. One of us has the true God. The other one doesn't. Because what she does to the Bible is so... Let's just stick with our lingo. It's unchristian. This isn't even reading the Bible normally.
6: As a feminist theologian, one of the things that gives me joy is reinterpreting texts that have been used to hurt or control people.
5: Please note, all those people were terrible. They hurt. They controlled. And she just said, they're wrong. One of us is.
6: Because the God that I know is full of light and life. Because the God that I know holds me in my grief and walks with me in my pain. I know that the sacred word of God is not a weapon, nor should it ever be used to harm or shame people.
5: Well, she forgot to mention he's also a God of truth and a God of clarity. When you, when you listen to people now in the 21st century make the claim that they are now getting it right, finally.
6: Ooh. Despite two millennia of misogynistic interpretations uh, of Genesis and
5: okay. Eve, there I have think.
6: always been other ways to read this story.
5: Eve. I can't wait to hear them. How's about you?
6: I love the story of Eve in the garden. My second child is named Eve. Oh. When we look at it with fresh eyes, it's quite a remarkable story. Have you ever noticed Lay it off. that God lied to Adam and Eve?
5: All right, then. <laughs> no, I hadn't noticed that. I hadn't noticed that at all, madam. It doesn't make any
6: sense, sir. While the serpent plays the role of the foil here, he's meant to set Eve up. For her role as the bringer of wisdom and moral agency to the human community, the setup for this action that she takes is that God lied to her. Wow. God told the first couple, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the middle of the garden, nor shall you touch it, or you will die. And the serpent reveals the truth. You won't die.
1: Wow!
5: Wow! So the serpent is truthful. That's right. God is a liar. We don't want to read the rest of the Bible to read how the entirety of Scripture would say just the opposite, including Jesus calling the devil the father of lies who was a liar from the beginning. Well, maybe she's got a feminist way to reinterpret Jesus' words to get them in alignment with her values. You are the children
7: of your father, the devil, and you are to follow your father's desire. From the very beginning, he was a murderer. And he's never been on the side of truth, because there is no truth in him. But he tells a lie, he is only doing what is natural to him, because he is a liar and the father of all lies.
5: But I tell the truth, and that is why you do not believe it. By the way, did she explain how it is she knows that God lied? I I didn't hear that foundation being laid, unless, of course, she's peddling the old ruse. But see, they didn't die on the spot. God didn't say you'd die in the spot. He said you will surely die. And last time I checked, Adam and Eve haven't been around for a while.
6: When we say that we need to trust women to make the critically important decision about whether to continue a pregnancy, it is rooted in a re- and Wait, whoa, 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 whoa. Wait
5: a second here. Where did that come from? That jumped the shark. Look, look. I have been guilty of some really awful segues. I, I admit it, but this was... ...a
6: critically important question about whether to continue a pregnancy. It is rooted in a reinterpreted understanding of the story of the Garden of Eden that recognizes and affirms the moral agency and wisdom that Eve chose in the Garden.
5: Oh, okay. So much for Romans 5. So much for our understanding that through one man, sin entered the world. Nope. This was all about pro-choice. Okay. Got so she had her conclusion. She went and found her proof text, I guess. All of us. Yeah.
6: The story of Eve is the story of why humanity is able to distinguish between what is right and wrong. And it marks this moral agency, no.
5: this knowledge. No, 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 no. It is because God has determined what is morally right and wrong. This is... This isn't sub-Christian. This is a Christian. If somebody went to the Shakespeare Festival or book club and reinterpreted Hamlet to mean it's the story about a man whose inner consciousness was enlightened, and then he ruled the world in the death of his father, therefore, it was a good thing. They'd go, stop doing that. That isn't even Shakespeare. Ditto Christianity. Ultrasounds, still the number one tool used by Preborn to encourage women to choose life, but so much more happens at a Preborn network clinic. Provisions, counseling, instruction, spiritual needs met, and even prayer. Would you please consider partnering with Preborn network of clinics at preborn.org slash wretched, preborn.org slash wretched.
4: Seventh Kingdom. This is Ken Ham, author of Divided Nation, Cultures in Chaos and a Conflicted Church. In biology class, students learn there are six kingdoms of life. Because the humans have physical characteristics like mammals, they're placed within the animal kingdom. Now this idea that humans are animals comes from the belief that all of life is related and that humans evolved from ape-like creatures. But of course, Believing we're just animals has real life consequences, especially for morality. As Christians, let's start our thinking with God's word. And that means we need a seventh kingdom of life, the human kingdom. You see, humans aren't just animals, and we certainly aren't related to them. We're separate from the apples.
0: Discover more about the true history of life and the universe when you visit our award-winning website, AnswersRadio.com. Get equipped at AnswersRadio.com.
2: So after Jesus died on the cross, did his spirit then descend into hell? No, Jesus Christ did not go to hell between his death and resurrection. In Ephesians 4, where it says he ascended on high, he also descended into the lower region so that he might fill all things. But this does not mean he went to hell. It means he was buried in the earth. That's literally how that translates. Psalm 16 says, You will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. The King James translates Sheol as hell, but the word means grave, not a place in the afterlife. We read in Acts 2.31 that Christ fulfilled this prophecy because, indeed, his body was raised to life and did not decay. In Matthew 12.40, Jesus said that he would go into the heart of the earth. But again, this is the grave. In 1 Peter 3, it says that after Christ died, he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison who did not obey in the days of Noah. But Colossians 2.15 explains that Christ triumphed over the dark forces and put them to open shame that doesn't involve going to hell. The Gospel of Nicodemus says Jesus descended into hell, but that's an apocryphal text written in the 4th century. Likewise, the Apostles' Creed says that he descended into hell, but the Creed came over a century after the Apostles had all died. It isn't Scripture. And the phrase, he descended into hell, likely has the same meaning as Ephesians 4:9. Jesus said to the thief hanging next to him, Today you will be with me in paradise. He said to his Father, Into your hands I commit my spirit. And as he breathed his last, he said, It is finished. The work was done. Christ had no Reason to descend into hell. So then, where was his spirit for those three days that his body was in a tomb? Well, he said paradise when we understand the text. In 2 Kings 2, after Elijah is taken up by chariots of fire and his protege Elisha succeeds his ministry, we read another popular story only three verses long, but it has stirred up a lot of controversy with some skeptics. Verse 23 begins, Elisha went up to Bethel, and as he was going, some small boys came out of the city and jeered at him, saying, Go up, you bald head, go up, you bald head. Elisha turned, and when he saw them, he cursed them in the name of the Lord. And two she-bears came out of the woods and tore 42 of the boys. From there he went on to Mount Carmel and then to Samaria. Okay, so really that's just two verses. But what's the deal? God had two she-bears come out of the woods and maul 42 small boys just for calling Elisha bald? That's pretty ruthless, right? Well, here's the thing. Elisha was going to Bethel, and that city was the focal point of Israel's apostasy. The people had become so hostile against God that even their youth would disrespect one of God's prophets. Elisha wasn't just some preacher, remember. He spoke the very words of the Lord. The reference to bald head isn't really understood, but whatever the meaning, it's clear that Elisha felt threatened to the point that he cursed them and two bears mauled 42 boys. But understand, there weren't just 42 of them. That's only how many the bears napped. In fact, there were likely more than 50 running in some kind of pack, threatening Elisha. What the writers of Kings truly mean to convey is that contempt toward God's prophets has disastrous consequences. Indeed, even Jesus said that those who won't accept the prophets also won't accept him. And that has the most disastrous consequence of all when we understand the text.
8: I tell people that there is a big difference between a childlike faith and a childish faith. I had the latter, not the former. My family was Southern Baptist, and when I was... Seven years old, I made a profession of faith, and I had all the intellectual assent to the basic gospel. Fast forward, when I was a teenager, I went to some faith healing meetings in hopes of being healed. A neighbor of mine came up to me and he said, Justin, God has spoken to me. And he told me that he's going to heal you as long as you have enough faith. Looking back on that, the very fact that I went to see faith healers was in and of itself an indication that something was wrong I wasn't really satisfied with uh, God's providence in my life so fast forward again I went to college at Mississippi State got an undergraduate degree and then I went to seminary thinking that I was a believer and I actually got two degrees from seminary a master divinity master of theology and I wrote my master's thesis on Benny Hinn the word of faith movement And I began teaching in churches against the Word of Faith movement, the Health and Wealth Prosperity Gospel. For the most part, what I was teaching was right, but I did not have a lasting assurance of my own conversion. There would be times that I would preach in a church and then I would go back and I would lay in the bed staring at the ceiling worried that if I were to die that I would go to hell. Uh, Something was wrong I knew something was wrong But I didn't know what was wrong There seemed to me to be a massive Inherent contradiction Within the gospel itself That I could not understand And it was basically this On the one hand we tell people That salvation is not of works And that much I understood I understood that I could not do Enough good deeds to earn my place in heaven That made sense to me But then on the other hand, we would tell people in order to be saved, they had to repent, which was doing a work. And for the life of me, I could not understand it. I had pockets of truth, but I couldn't really connect. Well, in God's providence, I met the woman who is now my wife, Kathy. He actually used her to help me come to an understanding of what true repentance was and what a true godly sorrow that is described in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, that repentance is in and of itself granted by God. God grants repentance. Acts chapter 5, Acts chapter 11, 2 Timothy chapter 2. So repentance is a work, but it's a work that God does in us. Paul describes two different kinds of sorrow over sin, a worldly sorrow and a godly sorrow. A worldly sorrow leads to death, Paul says, but a godly sorrow leads to repentance unto salvation. And a worldly sorrow is nothing more than a guilty conscience. What would happen to me if my sin were exposed? What would be the consequences to me? And so we try to cover up our sin, not because we grieve over it, but because we don't want the consequences of it. And I knew I was a sinner, but what I didn't truly have was this godly sorrow. That leads to repentance unto salvation, a godly sorrow when we grieve over our sin, because we understand that our sin grieves God. It grieves him, his person. He has been so good, so kind, so patient, so faithful, so merciful to us. And when we sin against him, it grieves us. At first, I didn't even understand what was happening in my life. First, I thought this was, you know, I just need to clear the theological cobwebs, get some things figured out. But as the months of that year went on, there were changes in my life. I began to, to truly grieve over my sin uh, in a godly way, um, the Psalm 51 kind of a way. That fear that I used to have of dying and going to hell, that melted away because uh, I began to realize that repentance is God's work. And, again, this is not, these are not changes that I was doing. They were being done in me. But uh, before my conversion, for example, I would go to Benny and Crusades, and I would see the people, the poor, the sick, the desperate, the widows being exploited, see people in wheelchairs, dozens and dozens of them, parents with sick children. And I would grieve for them. My heart broke for them. But now after my conversion, after truly being converted, that grieving is still there. I still have compassion for the people that are being exploited by these false teachers but what i began to notice in 2011 is my grieving changed i began to grieve over the reproach that was being brought upon christ the distortion of the gospel that's what captured my heart kathy my wife noticed the changes in me and as the months went along then i began to realize oh um this is my conversion Before my conversion I had an antagonism Towards God's sovereignty And salvation that melted away Now I see God's sovereignty and salvation For the beautiful beautiful Precious thing that it is And I no longer feared uh, Dying and going to hell That was just taken away And I requested to Receive believers baptism And so I, I was rebaptized, Or better said I was Biblically baptized And by God's grace, I've been serving him ever since.
4: It's nothing new. This is Ken Ham, author of the book on evangelism in our post-Christian world, Gospel Reset. Many Christians have asked me, what's happening in our culture? We've never seen such a dramatic rise in moral relativism and the LGBTQ worldview in our lifetime. So what's going on? Well, many seem to think that what's happening is new, but it's not. We're just seeing it in ways we never have in the West. You see, ever since the fall in Genesis, there's been a battle between light and darkness, good and evil. God's word and man's fallible word. But the battle is ramping up as the once Christianized worldview disappears. So what's the solution? Well, what it's always been, the truth of God's word and the saving gospel.
6: Discover
0: more about the spiritual battle raging in our culture when you visit us at AnswersRadio.com and learn more about Ken's books. Go to AnswersRadio.com.
2: Oh, We read in 1 Peter 3, 18 through 20, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared. Now, there are some who take this sentence to mean that Jesus descended into hell, but as we've examined before, that's a false teaching. While on the cross, Jesus told the thief next to him, Today you will be with me in paradise. His last words were, it is finished. The work of atonement was done. He had no reason to descend into hell. Though his body died, his spirit did not, which Peter states here. So what does it mean that he proclaimed to the spirits in prison? The best understanding comes from Jesus' account of the rich man and Lazarus in Luke 16. The rich man who cared for no one but himself died and went to a place of torment, while Lazarus, when he died, was carried by angels to Abraham's side. From there, the rich man was able to look across whatever chasm it was that separated them, and Abraham proclaimed to him why he was there. In the same way, Jesus, when he died, ascended into paradise. And like Abraham and the rich man, Jesus testified to the souls in torment that because they would not listen to the prophets, for those in the time of Noah, that would have been Noah himself, then they also would not have believed in Jesus. All who believe in Jesus Christ will have eternal life but those who do not believe will be sent to a place of eternal punishment when we understand the text. So,
4: who made God? This is Ken Ham inviting you to bring the whole family to visit our Creation Museum. Once at a conference, I had a young boy ask me, God created us, who created God? Here's how I replied. If someone made God, then you would need a bigger God. But now you have a problem. Who made the bigger God? You need a bigger, bigger God who made the bigger God who made God, but who made the bigger, bigger God? Well, you need a bigger, bigger, bigger God to make the bigger, bigger God, to make the bigger God who made God. If We could keep going back forever and then have to keep going. You know, the only thing that makes sense is to have the biggest God of all, and that's the infinite, eternal God, the creator God of the Bible.
0: Children are free in 2023 at the Creation Museum and Ark Encounter. So plan your family's visit today to Northern Kentucky when you go to AnswersRadio.com.
3: Get social with Truth Be Told Radio. Check us out on our Facebook Like page at Truth Be Told Radio. You can find our website at TruthBeToldRadio.com, that is, T-R-U-T-H-B-E-T-O-L-D-R-A-D-I-O dot C-O-M TruthBeToldRadio.com Do you have any questions, suggestions, comments, or want to tell us anything? Send those emails to TruthBeToldRadioShow at gmail.com Remember, by sending us your email, you give us permission to read it on the air. So write us at TruthBeToldRadioShow at gmail.com If you'd like to read blogs, we've got you covered. Check out ours at truthbetoldradio.blogspot.com. That's truthbetoldradio.blogspot.com. Also, follow us on Twitter as Truth, the letter B, then Told Radio. That is T-R-U-T-H-B-T-O-L-D-R-A-D-I-O. Once again, that is Truth, the letter B only, not B-E, Told Radio. This is due to the restraints for Twitter's username links. Finally, to learn the testimony of Melissa Canchoa, the hostess of Truth Be Told Radio, see smilesandstuff.com. That's S-M-I-L-E-S-A-N-D-S-T-U-F-F dot C-O-M. Smilesandstuff.com. So stay social with us, and thanks for listening to Truth Be Told Radio. Can we be
4: dogmatic? This is Ken Ham, an author and speaker on biblical authority and the truth of God's Word. Some people say we can't be dogmatic about things like the age of the earth. They say we can't really know what the book of Genesis really means. Well, if that's you, consider these questions. Do you believe Jesus rose from the dead? That he walked on water? That he fed 5,000 with five loaves and two fish? You probably do. And Why? Well, because the Bible says so. Now, do you believe God created in six days, a few thousand years ago? If not, why? Well, most Christians will say, because scientists say. And there's the problem. Man, not God, is your ultimate authority. Yes, we can be dogmatic about the truth when we start from God's Word.
0: There's so much more to learn about the truth of God's perfect Word when you visit our website at AnswersRadio.com. Get encouraged at AnswersRadio.com.
7: The greatest gospel verse in the Bible, 2 Corinthians 5.21, He made him who knew no sin, sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Let me unpack those 15 Greek words. He, God, made Jesus sin. What do you mean he made Jesus sin? Only in one sense. He treated him as if he had committed every sin ever committed by every person who would ever believe, though in fact he committed none of them. Hanging on the cross, he was wholly harmless undefiled hanging on the cross, he was a spotless lamb. He was never for a split second a sinner. He is holy God on the cross. But God is treating him, I'll put it more practically, as if he lived my life. God punished Jesus for my sin, turns right around and treats me as if I lived his life. That's the great doctrine of substitution. And on that doctrine turned the whole reformation of the church. That is the heart of the gospel. And what you get is complete forgiveness covered by the righteousness of Jesus Christ. When he looks at the cross, he sees you. When he looks at you, he sees Christ.
2: Isaiah 53, 5 through 6. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one of us to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all when we understand the text.
0: That's all I have for Truth Be Told Radio. Thanks for listening and bye for now. Thanks for listening and join us next time as we shine the light of biblical truth on Truth Be Told Radio.